0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. All right, after an eight-week break, if you can believe it, we're back in the Gospel of John. But since it's been 8 weeks, can't just start with 18. I need to go back to John one, 1 and review what we've seen so far. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, <laughs> that would take a while. You're right. So, I, I, I'm, if you need to get caught up on what we've done so far, it's all online. You can go back and get caught up all you want to. Um, but in our last study, 8 weeks ago, we finished our study of the Upper Room Discourse, which ended with the Lord's High Priestly Prayer John 17, just you know, a time when the Lord had taken His disciples apart by Himself and was just teaching them. The crowds weren't there, the Jewish leaders weren't there, it was just the Lord with His disciples teaching them and then in chapter 17 He prays for them. Now chapters 18-21 through 21 give us a historical record of the arrest, the trial, the self-sacrificial death and the resurrection of Christ. Now, the order of the events in these chapters is somewhat different than the synoptic gospels. And I'm sure you're aware of that if you're familiar with reading through the gospels. You read Matthew, and then you. I remember just the first time I became a Christian, I read Matthew, and then I read Mark, and I'm like, seems like I read this. Then I read Luke, and I'm like, seems like I read this. Then I got to John, I'm like, I didn't even read this before. It's all like all brand new, just about. You know, they're very different. Well, John doesn't often repeat the events covered in the other gospels unless he's adding new details to it. The differences between this fourth gospel and the synoptics, I think, can be attributed to several things. First of all, the nature of the eyewitness accounts. These guys are each telling the story from their own perspective, what they've seen, what they think is important. And Lazarus, the author of this gospel, is an eyewitness, and he's telling us this story, and he's emphasizing what is important to him, and he's He's leaving out things that the other Gospel writers have already mentioned. Remember, this, is, this Gospel was written late, so people would have had the other three Gospels already, been familiar with them. Another thing I think that's important is the author's theological purpose. See, John selects material specifically so that we might understand who Yeshua is and what He came to do. He tells us that's His purpose in John 20.31. But these are written, the things that are written, he's saying, are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. One of the things that distinguishes the account in the fourth Gospel from the parallels in the synoptics is the complete sovereignty of Yeshua as He undergoes these events. You know, the other Gospels, that you don't get near as strong a perspective as you do here. He is stressing the Lord's complete control in this situation. He's being arrested, but He's in control of this, as we'll see. He comes across not so much as a willing victim, the one who's controlling every event that's happening. All right, chapter 18, verse 1 says, When Yeshua had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples had entered. Now, let me ask you this. What day is this? What day is this taking place that Yeshua speaks these words and him and his disciples leave to go? Do what? All right, it is the 14th of Nisan. Why is that significant? That's Passover. All right, that's a very important day. Now, this is the evening. Okay, they were in this upper room together. It's gotten dark. So, when it gets dark, that's when the 14th starts. So they, it'll, it's going to be the 14th until the next day when the sun sets again. So this is the 14th of Nisan. And Mark tells us this. He says, And they, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, John says he was in a garden. Well, Mark's telling us this garden's on the Mount of Olives. But before they left, they sang a song. So Yeshua's in the room. He's praying with the disciples. They finished their prayer. They sang a song, a hymn. And they left for the Mount of Olives. Anybody know what's hymn they sang? No. <laughs> the psalms that were sung at this time were the remainder of the Hillel psalms, which would have been Psalm one fifteen through eighteen. I want to look at the Psalm one eighteen, and this is remember as we read this psalm. I want you to keep in mind it's the fourteenth. It's Passover. The Lord's going to die this day. And these are this is what they sing together before they leave the room. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Yeshua. He is the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God. He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures So they're singing a song of praise for the Lord's salvation, for the Lord's deliverance, for the Lord's cornerstone. And here is the cornerstone. Himself singing this, then moving out. Now this psalm is quoted by Peter. In his trial before the Sanhedrin, the very same Jewish court of law that condemned Yeshua, Peter says this to them. This Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, what is the purpose of laying this cornerstone? Well, it was to build a new temple upon. And we saw in John's Gospel that Yeshua is the new temple. He is replacing that old brick Stone temple, and he is the living temple. Now, Peter's addition of the personal pronoun you here tells us that the first century Jewish leaders were the ones spoken of in the song. He says, It's talk. you're the ones who rejected him, he's saying. The new temple was now being built, and they were the ones who were going to be crushed by this stone. This stone was going to be not a cornerstone to them, it was going to be a stumbling stone. Now the cornerstone or foundation stone that became a stumbling stone is a messianic theme in the Scriptures of the Tanakh. Let's look at Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. It says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. And then chapter 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. So this is all referring to Christ, Is talking about Christ. Paul quotes these passages in Romans chapter 9, 32 and 33. He says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So Paul takes these two verses from Isaiah, both of them very familiar to the Jews, And he combines them to show that Yeshua is both a stumbling stone and He's a cornerstone. To some, He's a stone that causes men to stumble. And this is what's going to happen to the Jewish leadership and most of the Jews. But to others, He's the cornerstone of life. Those who stumble over Yeshua fall to their own destruction. But those who build their lives on Him, He says, will not be disappointed. So, many Bible teachers today, they want to hold a distinction between Israel and the church. But when you understand biblical types and their fulfillment, you realize that the church is the new Israel. The church inherits all the promises of Israel. These prophecies that we have seen about the cornerstone were given to who? Israel. Isaiah writes to Israel, right? The Psalms are to Israel. But they're fulfilled in the church. The true Israel. So as Christ and the disciples are singing about the cornerstone, as they're singing about the stumbling stone, they leave the upper room and they head off to Christ's arrest, His trial, and His crucifixion. Soon the leaders of Israel are going to stumble over this stumbling stone. When Yeshua had spoken these words, now... What words? Well, I'm sure that refers to the prayer of chapter 17, but more probably it refers to chapters 13 through 17, the whole upper room discourse. When he finished these words, he left. And I think these words were spoken in the upper room. There's some division there. Some people say that, you know, he left the other room partway through his, this, and then they were wandering around Jerusalem, you know, until chapter 18. I think it was all done in the upper room. He says he went out with the disciples. Now I see this as I said as a reference to them leaving the upper room where the meal and the discourse just described in thirteen through seventeen took place. Some see this as a reference to them leaving the city. Now they left the upper room. Now they're leaving the city. So all day long, during this time, Yeshua would be in the temple and he'd be teaching, but he would spend the night in the open on in the hill called the Mount of Olives. Um, we are told this. By Luke and Luke twenty one, thirty seven, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. He says he crossed the Brook Kedron. Now, the Brook Kedron is a deep ravine, it's a wadi. Are you all familiar with wadi? You know what a wadi is? Hear that term? Do what? Okay, good. So you know, a wadi is a basically a dry riverbed, all right? Let me give you a little known fact. One of the greatest causes of death in the deserts around Jerusalem is drowning. Because people walk through these dry riverbeds, and they don't know that it's raining out there somewhere else, and all of a sudden this thing is dry to flood stages, and people are just swept away. Even today, you know, hikers and backpackers that go there, and they're walking through these wadis, you've got to be careful. You know, because all of a sudden they fill up. Well, this is what the Kadron was. It's, it's a river valley. It's a wadi. Uh, it's to the east of the city of Jerusalem and it separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. The valley begins north of the city and continues past the old city walls to south where the ravine joins the, the valley of Hinnom. You're familiar with that by now? South of Jerusalem. And the Cadron then goes southwest crossing the Judean wilderness and empties into the Dead Sea. And there's water flowing through there. Now, the dictionary of the Bible says this of the Kadron. It says, It is a dry ravine during most of the year, except when the rainy season, when it is full of swiftly flowing water. In the winter and very early spring, during the time of the Passover sacrifices, when the blood of the sacrificial animals that was poured out in the temple sacrificial altar drained into the cadron and made it a river of blood. See, during Passover... They sacrificed thousands and thousands of lambs and this blood would channel out down into this valley where mixed with the water you just got this blood red scene here. Now some scholars believe that John had the story here when he uses the word kadron to tell us about this that he's trying to remind us about David fleeing Absalom. Because David went through this same valley the Cadron Valley was associated by, with the, the, in the Jewish mind with the betrayal of King David. You remember his own son had rebelled against him and he had to evacuate Jerusalem in a hurry crossing the Cadron Valley. Now the parallels between Yeshua's experience here and David's at this point, I think are kind of interesting. Both men crossed the Cadron, having been rejected by their nation. David's fleeing for his life. The Lord's fleeing to his death. And they both were betrayed by somebody very close to them. In uh, 2 Samuel 15, 23, it says, And all the land wept aloud, and all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kadron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And then in 2 Samuel 15, 30 and 31, it says, But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. barefoot barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Another thing that's similar between these two stories is the hangings followed both these incidents. Ahithophel hung himself, and so did Judas. is the only person in the Old Testament where we have that idea of hanging himself. So there, there's a lot of similarities here, and I think that's the picture that John is trying to portray. This is, this is Yeshua, David's greater son, crossing this same brook, being rejected by his people. He says, where there was a garden. Now John is the only Gospel writer to mention a garden. This garden is identified in Matthew 26.36 and Mark 14.32 as Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press or oil valley. The garden must have been located somewhere in the lower parts of the Mount of Olives. And so it's called oil valley because of all the olive trees that are there. So that's where he's going. Now let me ask you something. What theologically is John trying to tell us here? by mentioning a garden. But none of the other writers mention this. What's he trying to tell us? Well, Cyril of Jerusalem and Thomas Aquinas believe that John is drawing our attention to the parallels that existed in the struggle between Satan and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And now the struggle between Judas, the tool of Satan, and Yeshua, the last Adam, in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, the fall of man began in a garden with Adam's disobedience. And now Yeshua, the last Adam, will begin His defeat of Satan in a garden where in obedience He yields Himself to the will of God the Father and accepts the cup that the Father has given Him. John says that Yeshua and His disciples entered this garden. And later in verse 13, he says they went out and the verbs that John uses to describe Yeshua entering and leaving suggest that this was a walled garden. Probably a private place belonged to somebody that you know, they let Yeshua use this. But it's a walled garden, and I believe the Garden of Eden is the same thing. It was a walled garden where God dwelt. So this garden's on the Mount of Olives. And the Mishnah, the Jewish book of sacred oral tradition, identifies the Mount of Olives as the site of the ritual sacrifice and whole burnt offerings of the red heifer. You all heard about the red heifer, right? I mean, you probably heard about it because you know people who are dispensational today are say, oh, they're, they're breeding red heifers again. Big deal. They can't do anything with them. All that stuff's over, right? The Lord's done with that. But the purpose of the red heifer was to cleanse you from sacrificial defilement with the dead. Uh, we read about that in Numbers 19. See, the ashes of the this sacrifice of the red heifer were mixed with water, and it became a holy water of ritual purification from the defilement of death. Now, Numbers 19, 11, and 12 talks about that. And I think the idea here is, again, Yeshua has become our red heifer. It is only through Him that we are purified of our sins and born into the family of God. This is where he, the place He is is where the red heifer sacrifice took place. This is the garden. So there's a lot of theological telegraphing, I think, that John is trying to put across in his words here. Now, why did Yeshua go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives? Well, all the Gospels imply that He intended to spend the night in Jerusalem rather than returning to Bethany where He had been staying. Remember, He had friends in Bethany and often He went there to stay. But he couldn't do that now because it was Passover. See, and the Jews of Yeshua's time interpreted Deuteronomy 16.7 to mean that everyone coming to Jerusalem for Passover had to spend the night in the city. Well, that became a problem because there was way too many people for all of them to spend the night in the city. There just wasn't room. There were so many pilgrims who would flood the city that it wasn't possible. So the rabbi said, well... The law says we can't do this, so let's extend the borders of the city. So that's what they did. You know, They figured we'll, we'll get around this, we'll extend the border. And so they extended it to the outlying areas, including the Olive Gardens on the west slope of the Mount of Olives near Bethany, but not as far as to Bethany. Bethany was two miles away. They didn't make it that far, so people could go out in the hills and sleep there. And a lot of people did because the cities were packed at this time. So he couldn't go to Bethany and stay with his friends. But why did he go to this garden? Why why does he leave and go to this garden? What's the purpose? What do you think he's thinking? Why is he going there? I think he's going there because he knows this is where Judas is going to be looking for him. And he wants Judas to find him because it's time for him to die. Again, he's controlling this people. On previous occasions, they tried to arrest him and he passed through their mists. He got away from them and he would say, it's not my hour. So they couldn't do anything to him. But now, he went there to be arrested because it is his hour. And as the good shepherd, he is going there to lay down his life for the sheep. He says, I know this is where Judas is going to, and we're going to see that in the next verse. So while Lazarus doesn't elaborate on what happened next, Mark and Luke do. So I want to read Mark's account just so we have this setting in our mind of what's going on here. Um, This is Mark 14, 32-42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is the garden. It's the garden of Gethsemane. That's what John told us. He's in the garden. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled He doesn't want to go through this, and I don't think he's talking about the physical agony and pain here. I think that was absolutely horrendous. Crucifixion is one of the most brutal forms of death there is. But I think on Yeshua's mind here is the separation from the Father as He bears the sins of the world. So he says, but that's okay, not what I will, but I want to submit to your will. And He came and found them sleeping, and He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, Mark says the Son of Man is going to get betrayed into the hand of sinners. Can you just hang on to that thought for a second? We're going to get to that in a minute. I want to try to elaborate on what what I think he's emphasizing here. Just as human sin was conceived in the garden, so it's overcome in another garden. In this text, we see Christ, the last Adam, obediently surrendering to the will of God, which is the cross. Adam's sin brought our condemnation, and Christ's obedience brings our justification. In the Garden of Eden, man's representative fell in sin, bringing death to all men. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, man's representative was victorious over sin, freeing God's elect from death. In verse 2, John says, Now Judas who betrayed Him, also knew this place that Yeshua often met there with His disciples. Now, this is a parenthetical note from the author, from John, to the effect that Judas is the one who was to betray Him, and he was familiar with this place. See, that's why Yeshua's going here. He knows that Judas had gone here often with the Lord to watch the Lord pray, to fellowship with This was a place that Judas hung out with the Lord and the other disciples hearing Him teach, listening to Him, and now Judas is taking this very sacred place and turning it into a place of betrayal. So the Lord goes there knowing that Judas is coming to betray Him. Verse 3, And Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, The band of soldiers here, there's a lot of controversy over, you know, everybody wants to, or a lot of people want to say, well, this is just a a band of Jewish soldiers. No, I don't think it is at all. D.A. Carson writes this. Only John specifies that in addition to bringing the Jewish officials, Judas Iscariot also guided a detachment of soldiers, the Greek ten spiran. Now, it makes it clear that these were not Jews, but the cohort of Roman auxiliaries. A full auxiliary cohort had a paper strength of 1,000 men, 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry, and was led by a chiliarch, the leader of a 1,000, often translated tribune or commander in verse 12. In practice, a cohort normally numbered 600 men But in any case, the noun spiria can refer to a maniple of 200 men and is not necessarily to assume that an entire maniple was present. So his argument is, you know, this is supposed to represent 600 men, but it could just be referring to 200. It could have been less. It doesn't have to be that amount. But the the idea here is there's a good lot of Roman soldiers here, all right? Uh, There's a bunch of them, all right? He goes on to say, Roman auxiliary troops were usually stationed at Caesarea. But during the feast days, they were garrisoned at the fortress of Antonio to the northwest of the temple complex. During the Jewish feast, the Romans would move a lot of the soldiers from Caesarea to Fort Antonia, which was right next to the temple. In the fortress, they could look down on the Jewish synagogue, on the Jewish temple there, the courtyard of the temple, and see what was going on, because they always expected trouble, alright, and so now they're right next to it, and if there's trouble, these Roman soldiers can march right in and take over and straighten things out, alright, so that's why they're there. So some argue that these are not Roman soldiers, just a band of Jews, but I think the other gospel writers agree with John that the Romans were involved. Matthew and Mark's comments in Matthew 26.45 and Mark 14.41 say that the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Well, I told you to hang on to that. All right, he's betrayed into the hands of sinners. I think it's a reference to the ritually unclean Gentile Roman soldiers. Sinners was a term they often used of Gentiles. Because they were Jews. See, they were holy. The Gentiles were the sinners. Matthew and Mark also mentioned that those who came to arrest Yeshua carried both swords and clubs. Now, biblical, biblical historians point out that it was unlawful for Jews to carry swords on a feast day. So the idea you got swords and clubs here gives you the idea that, well, okay, they're talking about the Matthew and Mark are agreeing. The Jews, the temple guards, are carrying the clubs. The Romans are carrying the swords. And they're present there to arrest Yeshua. He says, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So it seems that the soldiers from the Roman cohort were put at the disposal of the chief priests and were sent to accompany the temple guards. Now, (laughs) you kind of have to laugh when you hear this and think maybe they sent all this Roman cohort with the temple guards because the last time they sent the temple guards to arrest Yeshua, do you remember what happened? They're like, wow, this guy's a great speaker. We didn't, we, you know, they, I mean, look at John chapter 7. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I mean, they're just enamored listening to Christ speak. They didn't arrest him. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? So to make sure this doesn't happen again, we're sending a Roman cohort with you. They're not taking any chances. And in a very literal sense, I think what we have here is a picture of the army of the ruler of this world coming to arrest Yeshua. So John presents both Gentiles, the Roman army, and Jews as playing a part in Yeshua's arrest. And I think by combining the Romans and the Jews, what he is saying is the whole world has come out against Yeshua. That's how John used it. We've seen it over and over. He used the word world, not to mean everybody, but means Jews and Gentiles. And so he's saying here, we got Jews and Gentiles coming against Christ, the whole world. The ruler of this world's whole army is coming into this garden to arrest Yeshua. Now some question, why would Pilate have been willing to assist the Jewish authorities in Yeshua's arrest. I mean, they argue it just doesn't make sense. Pilate wouldn't have done that. That wouldn't have happened. Well, think about this. you got a huge crowd of pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover. All right, they're packed. Messianic fever is high. They're all looking for Messiah. They know Messiah. John the Baptist has come on the scene in the very place they crossed the Jordan, and they they just got this anticipation that soon Messiah is going to show up. So Messianic fever is very high. And no doubt the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and they said, you know, we got this guy Yeshua claiming to be Messiah, or to you, claiming to be King of the Jews. He claims to be King. And as King, he might want to overthrow Rome. And so, you know, you guys better be careful about this guy. So he's like, yeah, uh, let me send a Roman cohort with you to help you to enforce this, to make sure this Yeshua guy Doesn't get out of hand. Matthew says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So he agrees with John. There's a great crowd here. They got swords. They got clubs. You got Romans. You got Jewish officials. They come armed to the teeth. Why do they arm themselves like this against Yeshua? I mean, it's just Yeshua and a small band of disciples. And they don't even know how to use weapons, as we'll see in a minute, and Peter tries to use one. They don't know what they're doing. Why this huge show of power? I mean, it's just Yeshua and His disciples in the garden. He's in the temple every day teaching, and now they send out this huge show crowd to arrest him. I think maybe it's because they recognized Yeshua's power. I mean, earlier in the week, he had run everyone out of the entire temple ground. He made a whip, and he ran out hundreds of thousands of people from that temple. That had to be in their heads. Hey, this guy's got some kind of power, some kind of authority. They knew he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. That had to be in their minds. They knew he's a miracle worker. I think they're very aware of his power so they they come in full strength. All right, We're going to make sure nothing happens here. We're going to get this guy. So they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now John adds another detail here. He tells us that they brought lanterns and torches. Now, it's the time of the Paschal full moon. So the moon would have been Full and bright under the night sky. I mean, it would just been clear. So why do they need torches? Well, they're going to an olive garden. They're going to search that garden. There's going to be dark places. They're going to search to find them. They're willing to, they think they're going to have a fight here. So they're getting ready for that. But I think, again, as John often does, this little detail indicates this is an eyewitness account. I was there. I saw these guys. All right. But also he's reminding us of the light darkness Moffat that we see all through the fourth gospel. John is telling us that it's night now, all right. The darkness has come, and it's over. He said in John twelve thirty five. So Yeshua said to them, "The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you." So the light is leaving. Okay, this is the last night for the light. The darkness is coming. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Now these words are significant because. These are Yeshua's last words to the crowd. From here he goes to the upper room discourse and he's only talking to his disciples. This is the end of his public ministry. So he ends the ministry to the Jews by using the light, dark metaphor that's so prevalent in the Gospel. Verse 4 says, Then Yeshua, knowing that, that what would happen to Him, He came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, earlier in the ministry, Yeshua had withdrawn from the conflict with the officials because He said, my hour has not yet come. But now His hour has arrived. It's time. So Yeshua confronts this large military crowd by stepping forward and asking, who are you guys here looking for? He's not hiding. They don't have to go searching for Him. This crowd comes up and Yeshua steps forward. What do you guys want? What are you doing here? Whom do you seek? He wants to hear them give the names that are on the warrant. Who are you here for? Who? Whose name's on this arrest warrant? You guys are coming out like this. And there's a reason for Him doing this. They answered Him, Yeshua the Nazarene. Yeshua said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing by by with Him. Again, this is another parenthetical note that Judas, who gives the kiss in the other Gospels, they don't see, that doesn't take place here, so he's making sure you understand. Judas is right here with them, all right, when this happens. When Yeshua said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, Yeshua here identifies himself as the person they stop, they, they're They looking for. Who are you looking for? Yeshua the Nazarene. He said, I am. And you're familiar with this by now. Okay, we've been through this so many times in this gospel. I am, that's significant. And what's significant here is he says this three times. He says it in verse five, he says it in verse six, he says it in verse eight. In the Greek text, it's ego a me. He is added by the translators. There's no he in the text here. He's simply saying, I am. And instantly, the Jews recognize this from Exodus chapter three. He is saying, I'm Yahweh. Who are you looking for? Yeshua of Nazareth. He said, I am. Ahia, in the Hebrew. Ahia, I am. Associated with Yahweh. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And he says, it's me. I am. Now, (laughs) i got to ask this. They all fall back when he says that. Why? Why do they all fall back when he identifies himself as the I am? I'll tell you, people, if you want a good laugh, grab a bunch of commentaries and read what they say here. I mean, seriously, it is laughable. Or at least it would be if it wasn't so insane, okay? you got this picture. You're in the garden. It's a closed garden. His troops are coming in, and Yeshua just steps right up. Who are you looking for? Yeshua the Nazarene. I am. Boom, they fall to the ground. Let me ask you again, who are you looking for? Yeshua the Nazarene. Why'd they fall down? Well, some biblical scholars, I use that term loosely, okay, think that the Jews, upon hearing the divine name, prostrated themselves. Okay, I can get that. That was a very sacred, the Jews didn't speak that at the time, so they heard the name Yahweh, maybe they fell down. But the Romans certainly aren't going to fall down on the ground in reverence to the divine name. It was just another god to them. They didn't care. So, no, I don't think these Romans are falling down at all. So, that doesn't seem to make sense. Now, some say they probably drew back and fell because being shocked, they could not believe that the man they had come for, expecting to have to hunt for him, was virtually surrendering to them. This is a trained Roman cohort. All right, so they come in, And Yeshua steps forward, who are you looking for? Oh no, and they all fall. Come on, people, really? This Roman army, this is a trained army, okay? These are not some, this is not the Canadian Royal Mounties, okay? These are, this is a, you know, this is a serious army here. Sorry, Canadians, no offense there, but. (laughs) I mean, I just can't buy that. That just sounds ridiculous. Now, Leon Morris. This is really shocking to me. Leon Morris says this. It's possible that those in front recoiled from Yeshua unex- Yeshua's unexpected advance so that they bumped those behind them causing them all to stumble and fall. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, oh, 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 we didn't expect you to say that. and They fall and boom, boom, boom. they all The whole place just falls down. You know, that's so natural sounding. You know, they're just looking for a natural human excuse. Why would all these guys fall? Others say that they drew back and fell because they were uncertain about how he would respond to them. Oh, here's this one Nazarene. We're not sure how he's going to respond. And he steps forward, so we all just fall down. Kind of shocked us. Another view is that you love this one. Since it was customary for rabbis to kiss their disciples first, but here Judas kissed Jesus first. This insult to Jesus' person so shocked the soldiers that they fell back. Oh my word! Like the yeah, like the Roman soldiers, you Jews are violating protocol. Oh, they all just fall down. We can't. My word, people, come on. Let me give you a more reasonable explanation here. In another demonstration of his divinity, when Yeshua pronounced the divine name, that a flash of his divine power was revealed that pushed those present back and knocked them to the ground. Now that makes more sense to me. Saying, "I'm Yahweh," and yeah, that's the whole thing. This is the power of God. God is being revealed. The description of their reaction fits the descriptions in the Tanakh of people's response to a theophany, to an appearance of God. And I think that's precisely John's point here. They're realizing they've come to arrest God. And they all fall back. Now, a Jewish tradition, purportedly pre-Christian, it's attributed to early diaspora Jewish writings, uh, our said that when Moses pronounced the name of God, that Pharaoh fell backward. We don't know if that happened or not. But Alexander McLaren says this. He says, there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh and an emission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled with him, and that therefore, just as Isaiah, when he saw the king in his glory, said, woe is me, for I am undone. And just as Moses could not look upon the face, but could only see the back part, so here, the one stray beam of manifest divinity that shot through the crevice, as it were, for an instant was enough to prostate with a strange and awe, even those rude and insensitive men. And I agree with that. I think apparently Yeshua's reply was accompanied by a momentary, miraculous flash of His glory. Perhaps like what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Remember, Paul's on the way to arrest people. All of a sudden, he sees a bright light and he falls to the ground. Same thing here. No mention of light, but he just says, I am. Ah, yeah. Boom, they fall down. If this was a demonstration of Yeshua's divine power, this incident reveals once again that Yeshua is completely in charge of what is going on in this garden. Okay, He's not a victim, people. He's in control. And He proves He's in control by all all this whole crowd come out to get me. Boom! They're on the ground. He had the power to resist His adversaries. He freely allowed them to take Him. He went there so they could take Him prisoner. This is what Yeshua told His disciples in John 10. For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from Me. I lay it down of My own accord. Nobody's taken His life. He went there to lay down His life. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from My Father. So Yeshua is no victim. And I think this is part of this. He's showing I'm in control. I don't care how many people you send to get me. I'm still in control. Every one of them. I love the way the psalmist put it. He says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And they're there to arrest the King of glory. And as Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And the Lord is laughing as the crowd falls. God's sovereignty permeates this account of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion. John conveys through his narrative that Yeshua is in complete control, much more strongly than any of the other Gospels. Now, in the synoptic narratives, Judas comes forward and identifies Yeshua with a kiss. We're all familiar with that, which was probably a kiss on the hand, you know, the record, which was the recognized greeting from a disciple to a rabbi Not the kiss on the cheek that is depicted by Western art. You know, don't get your theology from pictures, okay? John, as his usual practice, doesn't repeat the detail of the treacherous kiss recorded in the Gospels. He expects his readers to be familiar with that account, so he just leaves that out. Verse 7 and 8 says, And he asked them again, so they fall down on the ground, they're getting back up, and he asks them again, Who do you seek? Who are you guys here to get? And they said, Yeshua the Nazarene. Yeshua answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these go. Now, they have repeated their orders twice. And we know the law states at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. They have declared that they have no right to lay their hands on the disciples because only Yeshua's name is on the warrant. So, John presents Yeshua as being in such control that in verse 8, he commands this huge arresting mob these guys you don't touch. They're going free. Now, according to the Synoptic Gospel, the disciples ran away like a bunch of frightened little girls, okay? But John wants us to know that even as he was being arrested, Yeshua took care of the safety of his disciples. If you seek Me, He says, you let these go. Now, if here is a first class condition. Since since you're seeking Me, let these go. Let these men go is an heiress active imperative. He is commanding. Yeshua is commanding the devil's army. Let these disciples go. And guess what? They let him go. Okay? Well, verse 9 says, This was to fulfill... The word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Now this refers back to the prayer in John 17. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So this is what he's referring to. He says, the ones you gave me, I didn't lose one. Not one of them is going to be lost. Although the preservation in John 18.9 refers to, specifically in this text, to keeping them from arrest, it's symbolic of His keeping them spiritually. The disciples were not yet spiritually strong enough to deal with the persecution here of being arrested, so the Lord protects them. So in a sense, He is protecting them spiritually by keeping them from a trial that they were not ready to deal with. Now, notice what He says here. Of those whom you gave Me. Hopefully by now you're familiar with this idea of the given. Over and over in this Gospel we've seen it. The elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son because of His sacrifice on Calvary. They are the given. There's a certain group of people. that The Father's given to the Son. And the implication here is that Judas was not one of the given. He's not one of them. The ones you gave me, I didn't lose one, but you lost Judas because he wasn't one of the given. He didn't belong to me. Yeshua keeps all those. We saw this in John 10. He's the shepherd. He takes care of his sheep. He protects his sheep. In verse 10 it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, stop and picture this scene. You got a huge armed mob, who's got to be a little jittery right now, because they all just fell on the ground and they're got to be embarrassed if nothing else. Okay, so they stand back up and they're you know they're still dealing with Yeshua, and all of a sudden Peter pulls out his uh, machaira, which is more like a dagger than a sword. Literally, it's a short sword, but it's something that the Romans used, and he strikes the high priest and cuts off his ear. So you got these trained soldiers there you got a little tense situation because they've all just fallen down. And all of a sudden, Peter draws first blood. It, this is like taking, striking a match in a room full of gasoline fumes. But nothing happens because Yeshua, again, is in control of this situation. I mean, this would have been a time when all the Romans pull out their swords and like, just pounce on them you know, and wipe them out. But they didn't. Because that's not how the Lord's supposed to die. Okay, Now, Malchus... Is a personal servant of the high priest, and we think of, oh, he's just some servant. No, he would have a lot of authority, including authority over the temple police. So this is a high-ranking official that he's just tried to. You know, he didn't try to cut his ear off. Okay, he went for the head, but he's you know he's not a trained soldier. He got his ear, and so you know he drew first blood, and that's enough to set this mob off. But nothing happens. You know Peter's attempt is noble. You got to give him some credit. Okay, Peter, you got guts. All right. But you're kind of dumb. You're a fisherman. You're not a warrior. You know, this is an army that's, you know, fully armed. You're just a disciple. The unfortunate thing was after spending three and a half years with the Lord and the Lord telling him over and over, I'm going to die. I came to die. I came to die for your sin. Peter didn't get it yet. He's still trying to keep the Lord from dying, trying to keep the Lord from the cross. He didn't understand what was happening. All the Gospels record this incident. But John only names that Peter and Malchus by name. And maybe he gives Peter's name here because it's later. He's not going to get in trouble for it because he might have already been dead by this time. Remember, he wrote later. But the mention of their names, I think, just again, he's adding additional details to the story. He's an eyewitness. And he wants to let them know exactly what's happening here. Now, that he names Malchus here is one of the reasons why I believe that Lazarus, a.k.a. John Eleazar, wrote this Gospel. Because Lazarus was a Jewish priest. He knows the name of the high priest's servant. How does he know that? Listen, the Apostle John is a Galilean. He wouldn't have any clue what this servant's name was. But Lazarus knew so I think it's just one of the more details that's telling us that this is not some Galilean writing, this, this book. Verse 11, So Yeshua said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I drink the cup that the Father has given me? A little later in the narrative, Yeshua says this. Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but My kingdom is not from the world. So, believers, Yeshua is saying here, My people don't fight. We don't take up arms. Christ's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. He is dying voluntarily. He doesn't need any help from anybody. He responds, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. Now, the grammatical form of Yeshua's question expects a yes answer. Yeah, I'm supposed to take this cup. He's referring to the cup of suffering that He drank on the cross according to the Father's plan, freeing mankind from God's wrath. Now, again, only here in the 4th Gospel is it specifically said that the cup is given to Yeshua to drink by the Father. The Father's putting this cup in his hand. Isaiah puts it this way Isaiah 53 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It was God who struck him down. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. This is the cup which the Lord bore for us. It was filled to the brim with the eternal weight of God's wrath. And for those who have faith in Christ, listen, He drank every drop of the wrath of God against you. The song says Yeshua paid it all. There's nothing left, people. It's not like you have to help out. It's not like the Catholics teach, He died for you, yes, He paid your sin, but you have to add, no, there's nothing you can add. And if you think you can add, you just destroy what He's done. You're saying, what you did is not enough. Now this idea of substitution, of Christ being condemned and suffering and dying in our place, is fundamental, people, to the Christian faith. Because in contrary to every other form of religion, we hold to a gospel of grace. A gospel of God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Believers, we're forgiven. Not because of our so-called good deeds outweighing the bad ones. We have eternal life. But not because we do our best to live up to a moral code. On the contrary, we know that our good works are insufficient. We are constantly failing to meet Yahweh's perfect standard of holiness. No, our hope is not based on anything we have done or anything we could do, but entirely on the fact that Yeshua, the sinless Lamb of God, gave His life in exchange for ours. What John communicates to us is that Yeshua is still in complete control. Even at this moment when our Lord was being taken into custody, His hands are being bound, but His hands are not tied in the sense that He wasn't powerless. Yeshua's words to Peter in Matthew 27 at this point are interesting. He says, Then Yeshua said to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, put your sword away. I don't need your help. i got the army of God on my side. How many angels would it be 12 legions make up? 72,000. How many angels do you think it would take to wipe out this Roman cohort? One, right? Thank you, one. Okay? Because look what one angel did in Isaiah. For I will defend this city, Yahweh speaking, to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So if one angel could take 185,000, you can imagine what 72,000 angels can do. All right? Yeshua is again saying, I'm in control. We don't need that, Peter. It's not what this is about. He is in control. He is always in control. Even in His arrest, He is controlling the events because He's going to the cross so He can give His life for yours and for mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that in this picture of this arrest scene as the armies of the world go to arrest You. Father, it's laughable. We see Your complete control over every circumstance in this arrest. Father, I thank You for Your sovereignty. I praise You for Your sovereignty. It is such comforting to know You control all events of time. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.